0: of all our praises. Hosanna, Hosanna. Come have your way among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Amen. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the elders here at the church. You may remember or you may have chosen to forget that during the 14-month search team era between uh, senior ministers that I had the chance to preach about a dozen times. And then, of course, we were all very glad when Ryan and Kara arrived back in October. And he's preached I don't know, 27, 28 times in a row now. And I was delighted when he gave me the opportunity to share God's word with you again today. Uh, we chose this morning for it for a couple reasons. First, Ryan and Kara's anniversary was this past week. Happy anniversary to the both of you. And the other reason was that I was quite comfortable agreeing to preach here on the 22nd of May, knowing full well that the world was going to end yesterday and I wouldn't actually have to <laughs> preach. So. I've got nothing, so Jeff, close us out. Yeah. Believe it or not, that is not just a cheap shot. Last year we were looking at wisdom in the book of James, and the next sermon that I was going to preach was going to be about controversy in the church. And so this message I've been sitting on for eight months. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's been sitting on it for eight months. Okay, eight months. And that delay actually proved somewhat... Timely, because this is about the right time for a message like this. Ryan has been here six months now. And guess what? The honeymoon's over. The bloom's off the rose. And we've discovered that Ryan and Kara are not going to be the saviors that rescue us from all our problems. And sooner or later, perhaps already, I'm going to say something or Ryan's going to say something. Somebody's going to say something. And you're going to think, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. How could somebody think that? How could somebody ever read the scriptures and come to that conclusion? Ever. It happens in our small group all the time. You never know what Doug Hassler is going to say. It's just one crazy thing after another. It was almost going to be a Kathy Hunter joke, but I'm worried about my my safety. (laughs) Perhaps the elders make a decision, and you hear about it, and you step back, and you scratch your head, and you say, why, why, why would they do that? Believe it or not, in the early church, this was just as much a problem then as now. People were taking offense over what other people did, what other people said, and what other people thought. So, find a Bible and get to Romans chapter 14. If I don't give you some background, I'm going to lose you in verse 2 when we start talking about eating vegetables. Seriously, so the church in Rome, like almost all early churches, was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Think of them as church people, church kids that grew up in church and knew God. Those are the Jews. They know God. And the Gentiles were like people that came to Christ as adults. And they had major cultural integration issues. They just didn't mix very easily. Paul had to write to these people to remind them of the gospel that they already believed. First eight chapters of Romans are the most foundational writing. ...and all of Scripture about what the Gospel is. God saves sinners. Chapter 12 and 13 are about how in light of God's mercy... ...we are to live with charity and humility towards each other. That wasn't happening in Rome. And it doesn't come naturally for us either. For them, the severest test came in the area of eating food... ...that had been sacrificed to idols... In an ancient pagan city, they had ancient pagan gods and temples and priests and a whole lot of animal sacrifices. And what do you think the priests did with all those animals? They sold them and they made quite a profit at it. What's false religion without a little profit taking on the side? So when you came to Christ, then what did that do for your diet? Some of the Jews were absolutely scandalized by the idea that somebody would eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol because idolatry was the number one cardinal sin of the Old Testament. And likewise, some of the Gentiles were also scandalized about eating that meat because it was a reminder to them of a sinful, shameful past before they came to Christ that they wanted to forget. But... On the other hand, there were some that realized, Jews and Gentiles both, that meat sacrificed to an idol was nothing. There's no such thing as an idol, and that is perfectly good meat for the diet. And so inside the church, you had one group that felt free to eat, one group that felt constrained by prior association that they should not eat, and the way these two groups were treating each other was tearing the church apart. And here comes a letter from Paul, Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The one who is weak is the one who feels these constraints and limits and boundaries upon their behavior. The one who is strong is the one who knows that they no longer need to feel those restraints anymore. Later on... Paul is going to say that the strong are technically correct on the merits of their argument. But there's more to it than just being right. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. The person who is strong, who knows correctly that he can eat the meat, will be tempted to look on the weak with contempt. You're so pathetic. You're so backwards. How can you be so childish about an issue that God has made clear? What's wrong with you? Grow up. Contempt. It was unappealing, it was sinful. The person who is weak, on the other hand, would be tempted to look at the strong person and say, how could you? How could you associate with that? How could you defile yourself? Don't you know that God hates idolatry? Do you even care about what God says? Do you even know God? They were passing judgment on their brothers. And what Paul says is, hey, cut it out. Don't despise the weak. Don't pass judgment on the strong. And why? Because God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I don't go to the green team guys and say, This week, I need you to cut the grass like this. Not like this. I want it cut like this. I'm not the boss of them. I don't go to Meyer and say, Hey, this Ben and Jerry's case, it's all jumbled and confused. I want it alphabetized, A through Vermonster, and fix it. Because how am I supposed to find my Coffee Heath Bar Crunch when it's just this mess? That wouldn't work. I'm not the boss of them. They have somebody else that they are responsible to. While we do have temporary and intermediate authority structures, parents and elders and teachers and civil government, ultimately each one of us is responsible for our own relationship with God. It is before our own master that we stand and fall. And the Lord is able to make us stand. Now, it's about to get crazy. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. A different symptom of the same root problem. Each one... Should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now consider what Paul could have said. He could have said, Hey, the strong are right. You can eat that meat. God has made all things clean. So, weak people, get with the program. You're wrong. You lose. Here's a nice juicy burger. Now, be quiet and grow up. That was one way that Paul could have gone, and he certainly does that in plenty of other places, but this was not that kind of issue. Likewise, he could have said, hey, hey, you guys, take it easy. This is not that big a deal. Don't Sweat, the small stuff. Just relax. And he doesn't say that either. What does he say? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Fully convinced, completely clear, absolutely persuaded. He could have ended the controversy right here in chapter 14, but he didn't. He told people to dig in, stick to their guns. It sounds like trouble. But they needed to learn how to do controversy right. How to handle the inevitable conflict in a God-honoring way, because it is going to happen. Now, why is controversy inevitable? We're not made instantaneously holy and wise at the moment of our conversion. We have a leftover sin nature that we continue to deal with. Likewise, Scripture can be hard. There's hard stuff here. Peter says in his second letter that, hey, you know, some of that stuff that Paul writes, yeah, that's, that's hard. You figured out, you let me know, because that's, that's tricky stuff. Roughly paraphrasing, that's, that's what he said. Hebrews, we're going through Hebrews. There's hard stuff in Hebrews. There's going to be some challenging weeks for Pastor Ryan ahead, because there's some tricky stuff in Hebrews. There's a thousand chapters here, and yet God didn't mean for it to be completely exhaustive. He didn't tell us everything that there is to know. All of that can lead to tension and controversy, which is not necessarily bad. So if there's so much room for controversy and disagreement, how can we function together? Romans 14 is the scriptural support for a proverb that has guided the church for generations. The little slogan goes back 400 years, the time of the Reformation, which was certainly a time of uh, controversy in the church. And here it is. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. You may or may not have been exposed to that before. It's not scriptural in itself, and it has some limitations, but it is useful. By charity, we mean a charitable disposition towards others, not charitable contributions. That's something else. First, unity in essentials. Romans 14, verse 5 is not a license for anything goes. When Paul says, be fully convinced in your own mind... He's not giving a license to believe or do whatever you want. We have 25 New Testament letters that testify to in light of who God is and what he's done, believe this. In light of who Christ is and his work on the cross, cross acts like this. There are real standards that do need to be upheld from this book. There are some basic essentials that we must agree on. And I'll lay them out for you quickly and then we'll charge ahead into controversy because uh, this isn't the point really of Romans 14. That's why we have Romans 1 through 11 is to deal with uh, essentials on unity and 14 is for the areas beyond that. But just so we're clear, it's worth saying there are three big categories of essentials and there they are. The nature of God, the nature of scripture, and the nature of the gospel. These are things that we must agree on to be Christians, to be a church first The nature of God, holy, 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 merciful and mighty, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, blessed Trinity, one God in three persons. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. You can't screw this up. The church wrestled with this for the first few generations and got it right early on. We ended up with the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is good stuff. Now, the second thing is the nature of Scripture. This book is the very Word of God, given to us by God, and what it says about itself is true. To have a viable Christian life, you have to let this book judge you, not the other way around. It's essential. If you disregard the Bible, you got nothing, really. Third, the nature of the Gospel God saves sinners. God is holy. I am a sinner. I can't know God apart from the work of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, to reconcile me to God. I can't save myself. I can't be a good enough person to rescue myself from the just condemnation that was upon me. Salvation is of the Lord in Christ alone. That's what we consider to be essential. Just three things. Obviously, other people would would disagree. Some folks put Too much in the essentials category, they say in addition to that you also have to believe this and this and the other. And if you try to jam too much into the essentials category, you take that train too far in the wrong direction and you end up uh, going off in the direction of a cult where everything is essential, nothing is non-essential. If you disagree with the leader about anything, you are out and you end up excluding people that God has welcomed. Welcome your brother because God has welcomed him. The danger in the other direction is saying too little and not having essentials enough at all. This is the path of liberal Christianity, which is truly not Christianity at all. And you've got some uh, postmodern relativism off in this direction as well. Once you compromise a little bit on the nature of the gospel and give a little ground here on the nature of scripture and start to envision God in the way that you'd like him to be, well, pretty soon you're off in no man's land, believing nothing and doing whatever you want, and you are out of sight of what God has called you to. So clearly, there are essentials, things that we must believe, boundaries we must not cross. But what about inside those boundaries? Once you have unity in the essentials then you must embrace liberty in the non-essentials. Paul gave the Roman Christians freedom on this issue. Avoid the meat, eat the meat, be fully convinced in your own mind. Know why you believe what you believe, know why you do what you do. It's easy to say okay yeah got that I can do that but then you have to deal with other people. Perhaps other people who disagree with you on some non-essential matter. Maybe even something that you hold close and cherish and consider dear to you. This is the concept we call Christian liberty. And let me be clear, we're not talking about moral boundaries here. When we say that scripture is our essential, we mean that we obey it as best we can. God has plainly said, thou shalt not steal. So you may not go out this afternoon rob a bank and say, hey, hey, Joshua didn't put larceny on the list of essentials, so take it up with him. No, the elders can say unanimously, don't rob a bank. That's, that's clear in scripture. We're not talking about crossing moral boundaries. Uh, some examples might help us see exactly what we mean by liberty issues. I'm gonna give a couple, and then I'm gonna open up the floor. For you guys to give a couple, and it'll be pretty fun and exciting. I came up with close to 20 different things that Christian can have passionate disagreements on, robust dialogue, and yet still be unified in the essentials because they're not. Salvation matters, these liberty areas. Let me get us started. Start at the beginning. Creation. Genesis 1 and 2 clearly indicate that God is the creator. He made it. He did it. It's his The whole earth is full of his glory. But, is Genesis 1 and 2 intended by God to be a scientifically valid handbook, a guide to the physical universe? Do you have to answer that question right in order to be a Christian? Another one, baptism. Our statement of faith says that repentant believers should be baptized in water, and we stand by that. But, is it essential? Can you confess Christ as Lord and turn to him in genuine faith and repentance and somehow miss the boat that you're supposed to be baptized or maybe understand that you're supposed to be baptized and refuse for some reason? Is that essential? Will that imperil your salvation? What's up with people who baptize babies? We don't do that here, but there are genuine people who seem to really love God that want to dunk their babies. What's up with that? The elders... We agree on that issue, but not in all issues of baptism are we in complete alignment. If you elders want to baptize babies, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Okay, that's a couple of doctrinal thingies. How about a couple of behavioral ones? Tattoos. Some people will point to that verse in Leviticus and say, see, God says no tattoos. And somebody else will want to say, yeah, can we talk about with that Verse is actually intending to address because the cross on my back has nothing to do with ancient pagan ancestor worship. Let me throw some fuel on the fire before I open the floor. Style of dress. Are you providing a distraction or a temptation to the opposite sex by the way that you dress your body? Or a more specific application at Prairie View? Here on the platform, how should people look? I'm wearing a tie. My shirt is tucked in and my shoes are presentable. Am I inadvertently communicating that all the babies are leaving? Oh, my goodness. Okay. (laughs) They're so fun to look at. Okay. Am I inadvertently communicating that you have to make yourself look nice and clean up yourself before you can come to church? That you have to clean up before you come to Christ? Or what if I lost the tie, yanked the shirt, and scuffed the shoes? Would... I'd be offending those that think that we need to put our best foot forward for the community and bring our best for God. Are those even questions that we should be talking about? Does that have to do with our mission of making disciples? Is that a mountain or is that a molehill? That is an area of wisdom and Christian liberty. I've given four. Now it's your turn. Turn to your neighbor and say, I have permission to speak. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'd like to speak, but I'm afraid he's going to bite my head off if I say something dumb. Who else can think of some sort of... Yes, you have an example of something that might be Christian liberty. Oh, we're doing it by microphone? But you're not supposed to work. Sunday as a day of rest. To what degree do we want to honor the explicit Old Testament commands on Sabbath? Or to what degree do we want to embrace the New Testament? I have not let uh, a day off in six months on Sunday. <laughs> the preacher works on Sunday. Is that an area of sin? Or is that an area where we take God to be saying, hey, you need margin. You need space in your life. To some degree, that's an area of Christian liberty. If you're running yourself ragged, then you're being a bad steward of your body and you're transgressing a moral boundary. But if I work on Sunday or work on Saturday, take a day off on Tuesday, is that an essential salvation matter? Not necessarily. What else? That was a good one. I can give you a couple more examples if you're having a hard time getting the creative juices flowing. Because predestination and election. Those are words that are found in the Bible... So we all believe something about predestination and election, but what do we think God meant by that? How do we define those terms? How do we think God meant for us to understand that? Believe it or not, that was on my list. God chooses us. Yes, but does he choose us because... Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you, Kim. Does he choose us because we chose him, or does he choose us on his own accord? We have elders on both sides of that issue, but we can't still work together because it's a non-essential matter that doesn't imperil salvation. Not Mardonna. I don't want to hear from Mardonna. (laughs) I'm kidding. What have you got? I thought I'd like to invite you and Ryan and your wives over for some beer and pizza. For some what kind of pizza? Beer and pizza. Beer and pizza. Pizza is a gift from God. Beer and alcohol is actually the last one that I want to cover because alcohol. No, 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 no. I meant that not the last thing I want to talk about. It's the last one on my list because that's going to lead us back into Romans 14. So we'll save that one. Let's take another and then I'll get back to Denise. I'm sorry, what in the pulpit? Women in the pulpit. There are some issues that are non-essential issues that a church is going to have to come to an agreement on you're either going to have women elders and pastors or you're not going to have women elders and pastors you can't do both at the same time sometimes the church just has to say going in this is an issue that we are going to have to decide if we're going to have church together there's a few others along those lines worship style what kind of music are you going to sing psalms only hymns only choruses what instruments are you going to use and what style Scott and Jeff are pretty different. They are cut from different cloths. So how do we look at a worship set and figure out, is this authentic and heartfelt? Is this worship in spirit and in truth? That's something a church has to deal with before they even have service on day one. Family worship. To what degree, if any, should kids have age-appropriate instruction and for what part of the service? i you start with that one, and that is a wisdom issue that we have liberty in. Church government structure. Is it congregational? Does the pastor have final say on everything? We have elders. Are elders supposed to be just oversight, making sure the staff doesn't go crazy, or the elders actually engage in ministry themselves? Those are some good ones. I think we'll cut it while well, the going is good, lest somebody say something really outrageous. I don't know what. I didn't prepare for everything. There is others, spiritual gifts. Does God still intend for uh, uh, tongues and prophecy to be used for today? Aesthetics. This is the classic arguing about the color of the carpet. To what degree do we care about what the church building looks like? Obviously, we want to take care of it, but church decor is that. Surely, that's an area of liberty that we don't want to get too worked up about. Debt. Is debt sinful? What degree of debt? What kind of debt? How much debt? There were um, candidates who didn't want to interview at Prairie View Christian Church for the search team because Prairie View has debt, and they had convictions about that. What's the right way to do communion? We're doing it differently this morning. Is that going to make you reflexively uncomfortable because it's different? We're going to be taking it all together, not individually, but all together after the sermon. Is there a right way to do communion? Communion, or is it a matter of the heart? Contraception. Children are a gift from God, but a pregnancy would kill Aaron. Is that something we just have to trust to God and put it in his hands, or has he given us the tools and the permission to make wise decisions about whether to conceive? Education. Education. Home school, public school, private school, Christian school. What factors are legitimate for making that decision? Is a Christian school better just because it claims to be Christian? That's one that has caused a lot of consternation in some churches, but somehow Prairie View seems to have escaped that one. Knock on wood. (laughs) Church budget. How do you prioritize among so many good opportunities when you have limited resources? Here's one where I am the classic weaker brother. Media consumption, moving images on a screen of any kind just suck me in, and my mind latches on, and all of a sudden I've spent 15 minutes watching the Matrix Revolutions, and I didn't even know it, and I was supposed to be doing the sermon, and it just, how did that happen? That's something where Erin has a whole lot more freedom in her spirit than I do, and she's had to bear with me as the weaker brother because. I feel that a whole lot more. There's a lot more limits on the quantity and content of what I take in. I promised to talk about this one. End times and the rapture. What will the sequence of events be that lead up to the return of our Savior? He told us a lot about it. And yet even in my home, this can be an area of disagreement. Aaron is one of those crazy amillennials. Other folks don't see the rapture as something that might happen at all. And they point to 1,800 years of scriptural interpretation to back that up. If you are expecting God to rapture the church, rapture you before the tribulation to come, and that's not how it plays out, will you be prepared for the trials that follow? But it's not a salvation issue, that's that's for sure. We covered predestination. Thank you, Kim Alcohol. Alcohol is going to lead us back into Romans 14 because this is the closest analog that we have to the meat issue. Clearly, drunkenness is a sin. Impaired driving, underage drinking are against the law and therefore a sin against God's authority. But what about a glass of wine at dinner? What about pizza and beer at the Grover's? What about a pint at the game? Some people have strong convictions based on their upbringing or based on previous associations that alcohol is clearly something that they are not at all comfortable with. Other folks say, hey, this is a gift from God that we can receive with thanksgiving and uh, enjoy in moderation. Some people feel free. Some people feel bound. Just like in Rome. Before we go back to Romans, Aaron, Carl, Brian, is there anything I have to fix? Is there anybody that... (laughs) Is there anybody that I haven't offended yet? Because I can come to your chair and do that personally. Find me afterwards. Okay. How does the Roman controversy over meat-sacrifice idols fit in? Was that an essential matter? In this case, the answer is clearly no. No. The weaker brothers wanted to make everybody keep kosher and avoid the appearance of association with idolatry. But they did not elevate that to a salvation issue, and they were not saying that by abstaining, they were making themselves right with God by keeping the law. In Galatia, they did do that, and Paul hammered them for it, saying that was completely beyond the pale, a breach of the essential of the gospel. On the other hand, the... Uh, strong brothers who were eating the meat were not participating in worship at the temple. They weren't going down for the Friday night orgy at the temple of Diana. Over in Corinth, they were. And they were saying, oh, it's an idol, it's nothing, we really worship God. And Paul hammered them for that, too. But in Rome, they were just eating the leftovers. And that was not an essential issue. Neither of these groups were out of bounds. They were brothers in the gospel, but... They needed to be reminded of it because they weren't acting like it. They needed to be reminded that they were all undeserving sinners saved by God's mercy. And they needed a completely different picture of how to treat each other. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. How are you supposed to treat a brother? with whom you agree on the essentials, but disagree passionately and deeply on an area of non-essentials. In all things, charity. Throughout this passage, Paul gives a lot of instructions, and they all get rooted repeatedly in the gospel of what God has done for us. Verse 1, we saw welcome each other, as God did, but not to quarrel over opinions. In verse 3, no despising, no judging, your brother's. Verse 6, have an attitude of humility and gratitude, not an attitude of pride in the rightness of your position. Verse 13, don't scandalize your brothers by your behavior. If you know that a brother has an issue with meat or alcohol or some belief that you hold, then don't rub it in their face. Paul settles the issue here in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but... It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Very important. If you think something is a sin and you do it, you have transgressed your conscience and you have sinned against the Lord. Don't be bullied into that. Stronger brothers, don't be that bully. Be gentle with your weaker brother's conscience. Four, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Destroy there means to destroy that relationship, to lose your brother. Don't breach that friendship by what you eat. Does that mean that there may be a time when you find it necessary to curtail your freedom and deny yourself just because somebody else might take offense? Yes. You may find it necessary when out of love and concern for your brother, you will voluntarily restrict your freedom. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Destroy, as in tear down. We're supposed to be about building others up in the Lord, not tearing down. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. We should have higher priorities than satisfying our own appetites. We are to be about building others up and helping them actively pursue their walk with Christ. You can exercise your freedom in what you know is okay and not sin in doing that, and yet still sin in the way that you do it if you do it with disregard for your brother. Now, mind you, that is a a real brother. That you know, not some hypothetical, I'm going to a restaurant, maybe there will be a weaker brother, maybe I should get salad and water. A real brother that you are with, that you know might take offense. Why would Paul call us to this? Why not just tell us what the right answer is and hope that everybody gets used to it? Because he's trying to teach us how to be like Christ. 15 verse 1, terrible chapter division. Same passage, same thought. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Bear with doesn't mean to tolerate reluctantly, but to take upon yourself the weakness of another. When you're with somebody that you could wound by exercising your freedom in your belief or in your action, take their weakness upon you. Allow yourself to be bound by another's conscience, by their standards, out of love for your brother. It's very hard. It's uncomfortable. It's frustrating and self-denying and self-sacrificing. It's so Christ-like. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on Christ was born as a man and identified with us sinners and was rejected by his people on account of us sinners and bore with us sinners and ultimately bore our sin to the cross where he left it. Paul points us to Christ as our savior and as our example as the foundation for this life of self-denying brother building. What does this mean at Prairie View? That means that all those fun issues that we talked about earlier, the alcohol, the rapture, the predestination, all that, it means be fully convinced in your own mind, but don't tear down your brother by the way you hold your beliefs, by the way you live your life and exercise your freedom in Christ. Don't hurt other people. That means that I will have to set aside my personal preference a lot. I won't get my way A lot. I hold my beliefs and my actions firmly and clearly, and I'm free to discuss them graciously and winsomely with my brothers. But it means that I bite my tongue a lot, believe it or not. Next week is Q&A Sunday. Ryan's going to give a lot of his own, well-grounded, well-informed, well-researched, carefully articulated personal opinions about what this book says except that his will be about eight times this size. He'll attempts to do that in a gracious, kind, helpful, and clear way, knowing that some people won't agree, knowing that I won't agree with everything that he says. The last one he did in January, there were some answers that were beautiful and perfect and complete, and other ones that I sat there thinking, yeah, that's not the direction I would have gone with that question. That's, that's, that's different, Ryan. Thank you for that. Good work. And that's okay. We're unified in the essentials. He thinks what he thinks. I think what I think. In non-essential manners, it's okay. He can be wrong. I'm okay with that. And and he feels the same about me. Rick is my favorite elder to serve with. Because he and I are so different. And I learned so much from him. Yet he and I are not on the same page on some of those hot-button theological issues But that's okay, because we know, he and I, that we are united in the essentials, and we can work together shepherding this church. Now, make no mistake, in areas of doctrine and behavior, it's better to be right than wrong. There are real consequences for getting something wrong, for being the weaker brother. Every scriptural passage has a correct interpretation. Many applications, but there is a correct interpretation that God meant for us. And to get that wrong a little bit can lead to incorrect belief, which can lead to miscalibrated behavior and ultimately to deficient worship. And that is the point of all behavior and, and doctrine is correct and proper glorious worship of the Lord. Let me give you an example. Aaron is very sick. If we thought that God wanted only the best for his children, health and comfort, and prosperity, and your best life now, and so some sin or lack of faith on her part or on my part was preventing the flow of God's abundant blessing, then we would be led to hopelessness and despair and abandonment by God in this one of our darker hours. But, on the other hand, if we know and believe and are convinced that God is more interested in my holiness in my comfort and in my joy in him rather than my joy in this world, then we will recognize that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And that leads to dependency upon God and trust in his goodness and sovereignty and, and leaning on him and intimacy in those uh, dark, dark times and, and joy in seeing his work of sanctification Accomplished in us and through us. I would press you hard to be right on this issue because you don't want to be heaping upon yourself extra trouble at your darkest time. But it's not a salvation issue, and Paul doesn't want us to break the harmony and unity of the fellowship over issues like that. Let's close with this final thought How does embracing controversy serve to glorify God? How does it help us help our community to actively pursue their walk with Christ? How is embracing all this controversy going to help with this? Isn't it a lot harder to share the life when there's so much divergence of opinion? Isn't it sort of undermining teaching the truth when we say that you can believe this or you can be, believe that? Just be sure in your own mind. Isn't it more difficult? To follow the way if you and I are going the same direction, but your path and my path don't go side by side very often. And we're not linking arms very much because there's a lot that we disagree on. How are we glorifying God through embracing this controversy? From the outside of the church, looking in, this kind of welcoming that we practice, sharing fellowship and camaraderie and the joy of unity with people, even though we disagree on non-essentials, that kind of embrace is strangely compelling and desirable because it's so humanly unnatural. They will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for each other. Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world would know that he came from the Father. The kind of hard work that it takes to do life together and build each other up as brothers and sisters in Christ testifies to his worthiness for our worship. The view from inside the church. As we grow in self-denial and humility, we grow in Christ's likeness. We work hard to handle these things graciously and kindly, not for the purpose of winning a discussion, but to build each other up into the likeness of Christ. And when we fail and we repent of uh, attitudes and words, um, it strengthens the bond of fellowship as we live this out. Nothing enhances fellowship and deepens friendship and draws people closer than a heartfelt apology, well-delivered and well-received. Anybody anybody who's married knows, knows that. Lastly, all this charity and liberty and non-essentials just serves to highlight that which we are unified on, the nature of God and his word and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can disagree on a lot of stuff, but it's unmistakable that we agree on the gospel, and that glorifies God. We're going to express and celebrate the unity that we have in Christ this morning in the way that we take communion. During this song, the servers will... Pass the juice, and they'll pass the bread. If you are in Christ, then take the bread, take the juice, and hold it, and wait. Sing the song, sit silently, pray, kneel, reflect. At the end of the song, I will come back up, and I will lead us through taking communion together as one body. If you don't know Christ, I would love to talk to you about that. If all this talk of unity and essentials and being reconciled to God is stirring something in your heart, we can help you explore that. Find me after the service. Okay? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you through your word. Thank you that we can understand your word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that your word tells us about you and that we can know you through your word and that we can know you personally through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this opportunity to worship together, hear your word together, sing your praise together, take communion together. May this church do well at loving each other in all things and treating each other kindly and charitably as we disagree and in the things that we agree. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.